Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. OG3 back, and we have two guests again. Luciano Cacheta is with us again. He's from the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine. He's acting as our co-host today. Thanks for being here, Luciano. Thanks for having us. So he's brought another friend, happens to be another another friend from Brazil. Rafael Bizinotto is here, and he is at the University of Florida. Got his DVM in Brazil. Worked at Florida to get his PhD, did a postdoc at Cornell, finally came, made the right choice, came to Minnesota for a while, only lasted a couple winters and then retreated back to Florida. So thank you for being here, Rafael. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you very much, Luciano, for the invitation. Uh, Brad, Emily. It, it's great to have another expert in the field. You know, uh, I, I don't think I'm an expert in, in pretty much anything, jack of all trades. Emily has a clear expertise and knows everything. And then Dr. Bradley J. Hines, tenured professor, is is clearly an expert in 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 many different things. Maybe yeah, I wouldn't call myself uh, an expert, but thank thanks. Yeah, Bradley's so, more of a you know jack of all, master of none type. That's thing. right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll do anything. Yeah, he's especially good at being tenured. Um, Very good at it. I do work, you know that. I know we we, we make fun of you, but you do you do work a lot, and that that's true. All right, so uh, before we get into today's topic, uh, Emily's going to read us through the super secret questions, which we are only going to ask Raphael because we got Luciano's answers last week, and we don't need them again. Raphael, your first question is: What is your favorite breed of beef cattle? Favorite beef beef cattle breed. Uh... Angus. Yeah. All right. Joe is happy. <laughs> As the presenting me should answer Nalori, but I got charged by those uh, too many times to like him. Number okay. one, they're probably number two. Well, that's good to know. Uh, uh, Luciano did get nostalgic and go Nalori, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited that you went with Angus. That's very important because that puts Angus ahead of Herefords for the Ooh. first time in a long time. So Angus at seven, Herefords at six, Black Baldy at two, Belted Galloway at two, Brahmin at one, Stabilizer one, Gelvy one, Scottish Highlander one, Kianino one, Charlay one, Simital one, and Nalore one. Whew, is that all? Yes. All right. So, super secret question number two, Raphael. What is your favorite breed of dairy cattle? Oh, definitely hosting. <laughs> oh, Brad. I, I, I quit. I'm going to go feed calves. Oh no, he's that is brutal. That is brutal. Uh, Brad and I are Jersey guys, so that's uh, that's why we're disappointed. But uh, Holstein's at eleven now with a really really strong showing Ooh. the last few few episodes. Uh, Jersey's at seven, Brown Swiss at four, Dutch Belted at two, Montbelliard two, and Normandy at one. So uh, again, a little disappointing, but I'll take it because <laughs> Angus moved ahead of Hereford, which is really good. Bradley disagrees, but that's okay. Okay, let's let's move on. Let's get into the topic today. The topic yes. today is really looking at kind of con continuing piggybacking off our, our conversation with Phil Cardozo in last episode and looking at the transition period. And really today what we're looking at is transition health 
and its effect on fertility for those cows. And, and that's, that's where Rafael's done a, a ton of work and that's why he's on today. But the place to start for me is kind of thinking about, and this is a number that always surprises me, is how many cows actually develop metabolic or infectious diseases uh, in the first few months of, of lactation. So let, let's talk about that. How many cows is it really? It really depends on how aggressive you are diagnosing and what you call a disease versus a metabolite going up or down. But we normally talk about over half of the cows, about half of the cows having some sort of disorder in the transition period. So I, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it's a, it's a large proportion. Yeah. That, that number always surprises me and, and it, it scares me to be honest, you know, uh, knowing that, especially with some of the work that, that you've put out and other people have put out how much of an effect it has, that that number's still high. Why haven't we been able to, to get a handle on that? Uh, we know a lot of things and we've learned a ton in the last 50 years about dairy farming and improved a lot of things. Why can't we get a handle on that number? Yeah, if I, if I had the answer, I probably could retire now. <laughs> but, but it is interesting. Some of the diseases that I work with the most, that's gametritis, for example, uh, it's being studied. We know the microbiome and the metabolome and, and to a detailed level that is kind of remarkable. But if you look back, we're still talking about 20, 20 plus percent of cows developing metritis and that hasn't uh, changed much, right? So I don't know exactly what the reasons for that are. Uh, the optimistic in me think that as times go by, we are doing a better job at preventing disease at the same time that we are doing a better job diagnosing it. So maybe we we're missing more cows before that now we're not missing. And that makes up for the difference in the decline in incidence. That, that might play a, a small role in that. It's, it's very difficult to look at averages, uh, but if you track what the best farms are doing, you probably see a much greater decline in incidence of these diseases because you have a, a, a large variation between very well-managed farms and the average farm and the, and the poor managed farm but when you draw the line and just get the average from everybody, a lot of that improvement on the upper end end up being missed. So I think that there's been uh, improvements over the years. Uh, we might not have been able to see as clearly, but I think the improvement's there. Bradley, I mean, what are you doing to check on, on the dairy up at, at Morris? What are you doing to check on, on transition health? Or are you doing fresh checks? What are you doing up there? Well, you can maybe guess what, it, what we're doing. We use sensors. Yeah, we're we're looking at uh, sensors basically to look at uh, transition cows, and that you know if they're showing up on the alert list, we're 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 checking them out. So that's what we've gone to when you have a three hundred cows and a bunch of fresh animals. In my mind, that's a little bit easier. Granted, it doesn't still it doesn't take away from going out and viewing the cows, but at least it starts the process of trying to figure out what's happening in the cows and which ones to check on. Well, and that, that probably comes even more important uh, as you're seasonally calving, right? And then and all of a sudden you've got calves everywhere where you didn't have any before. Right. Yeah. Perfect. What, where I'd like to start this conversation of, of transition cow diseases is really a discussion about inflammation, because I think that that's something that's pretty common. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about, right? Metritis, lameness, pneumonia, mastitis, they all have a component of inflammation, which really has been implicated as the problem when we're talking about reproduction down the road. How, 
how I think that the question that always gets me, and I think the one that's probably the hardest to, to answer, and so I'm going to ask it, is how does inflammation in the first three weeks affect me down the road for reproduction, potentially two months later? Yeah, so it does it in two ways. I think the, the first and more obvious way is some of those diseases persist. So some some cows that have inflammatory disease uh, due to metritis in the first three weeks postpartum are the same cows that still have endometritis 30, 40 days after parturition and, and beyond sometimes. So it, for some cows, it's not a very distant inflammation way back when and then a decline in reproduction much later. Uh, for some cows, that's actually happening at the same time. And it's not surprising that out of, out of all systems that you can imagine, reproduction will be the most sensitive to inflammation, among other things. But I'll get I'll get to that uh, I'll get to that later. But but what you said, some cows they do have a break uh, that at least to the best of our capacity, you spend a, a few weeks or a month that you don't detect the inflammation anymore, but you still see long terms uh, long term impact on on fertility later. And I think that's, again, for, for multiple reasons. One of them is, so if you think about the follicle, like the follicle is a, as a unit, it takes months to develop from uh, a primordial follicle all the way to pre-antral, antral follicle that would ovulate and donate a oocyte to, to be fertilized and uh, impacting. So when there's increase in inflammatory mediators or LPS, there, there are changes in granulosa cell expression that you can attack weeks to months later. So some of the units that are important for reproduction get long-term impacts from being exposed to an infectious inflammatory disease. So that's that's one component. Another component is that, especially for uterine diseases, there is tissue damage. And that's a part of the disease that we normally don't evaluate. So we check, for example, for vaginal discharge for calcimetritis. But we know from necropsy that a lot of those cows have a very extensive damage of the endometrium. And for example, damage to the oviduct. If the animal has like a small, small adhesions around the fimbria or in the oviduct, it's something that after all we can see as far as inflammation and disease is gone, is basically blocking the entry of the oocyte in the uterus. And the type of research that we do, we normally don't, don't pick up that, that level of detail. So that's a cow that's probably not being infertile in that case for a lag of inflammation, but there's anatomical changes associated with the disease that probably also play a role. There's, there's differences in uterine, uh, the endometrial gene expression that, that survive after infection is, is gone. Uh, and there's some nice studies that is, is based on association, so we can't really claim cause and consequence. But cows that either had or didn't have disease, uh, later they were subjected to either AI or amber transfer. So the idea is that a cow that is being seminated, if there's a damage in the oocyte or the follicle, that will affect fertility. Uh, if there's a damage in the uterus capacity to house pregnancy, that's also gonna affect fertility. But in the amber transfer recipient, the oocyte basically doesn't matter as much. There's probably some potential residual effects on the CL, but as far as the oocyte or the follicle, we're basically putting an, an embryo that was visually inspected and is a live or healthy embryo. 
And you still see a, a, a very similar decline in fertility and increase in pregnancy loss. So there's definitely a long-term uh, effect on the uterus capacity to do that crosstalk between the conceptus and the endometrium that is so important to promote elongation of the embryo and establishment of pregnancy. Do you see similar similar results or similar paths for both primaparous and multiparous cows? Are, 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 they, are they different? Are the results fairly similar when we're talking about the pathways for these inflammation? Is one worse than the other? Um, do I need to worry about that heifer that gets sick basically more than I worry about that cow? I don't, I don't think we have the, the definitive answer, but if you take metritis as an example, Primiparous cows are more likely to develop metritis. A first lactation cow, normally you have a greater incidence of metritis, which then if that's determining fertility, those should be your least fertile cows. But you see the opposite, that fertility is normally better for a first lactation cow than it is for older cows. So I'm sure that they deal with inflammation uh, in different ways. The lactational challenge for a multiparous cows is, is larger than it is for a primiparous cow. Uh, so I think primiparous cows overall uh, they, uh, at least based on epidemiological data, they, they deal with uh, the aftermath of inflammation slightly better than multiparous cows, at least when it comes for uterine diseases. You know, one of the things that I, I'm, that we're kind of dancing around a little bit in my mind is, you know, we talked about, you know, yeah, there's definitely differences in diagnosing these different diseases or, or specifically uterine diseases. How, do, how does the producer know when, when that's cleared up? Like you talked about, there could be anatomic changes. There could be a basically an impaired uterine environment. But how how is that producer going to know that? How do they know that that's cleared up? I think I think normally the producer or the veterinarian would know based on clinical signs. Uh, so if the cow still has like a purulent discharge, that cow is normally not inseminated. So if there is clear clinical signs that lingers after the voluntary wait period, I think that's one way. But for the most part, I think it boils down to just infertility. A lot of times it's not a conscious decision that we know this cow is infertile. The cow gets three, four, five chances and it gets to a critical time that now is no longer, for whatever reason, it's no longer profitable to impregnate that cow and she becomes a reproductive cool. Uh, so indirectly, that's you're diagnosing that infertility and removing that cow from the herd. But a lot of time comes as a consequence of infertility. Do you think, and maybe Luciano, you can comment on this as well. Do you think we have enough information about early metabolic or infectious disease and inflammation to say, if a cow has a clinical event, should she get less chances to get pregnant? Because I know she's impaired already. Should she get more because I know she's impaired already? Should I wait longer? You know, how do I handle that knowing upfront that that's going to affect her? If it's bad enough, do I just call her right away and she never gets a chance? How, how are we handling that cow knowing that it's affecting reproduction later? I'll say that uh, some cows should be do not breed cows from the get-go. I say that without having like a, a list, list all the topic, tops that they need to have to be on the call. But some cows, like you see that she's not transitioning well, definitely never like picking up production, had two or three disease events. You can tell it's one of the worst transitioning cows. Those are usually cows, might not have as, as great success or productively as average cow in the herd. 
so there is in many farms, people know like which cows are more likely to have trouble, but it's very hard to see someone should call cow do not breed from the get. Other than that, I don't have like like I mentioned before a list of events that would make a cow less likely to be pregnant, and then we can go both both ways. Like like do we do need all those cows to be pregnant because we need all those replacements? That's usually not the case anymore. Uh, so we can keep those cows with the other all the average cow in your herd, and if she doesn't get pregnant, because many other reasons, including the fact that she had a, a poor transition. She, whenever she hits the farm regular time breed, she's passed all her chances. Unfortunately, I don't have like an answer or a formula that we can use, but I'm interested to see what Rafael thinks about it. Yeah, I don't think there's a formula for that. If if you're going to cool every cow that has a smaller chance of getting pregnant because of disease, going back to the beginning of the podcast, you're going to get rid of uh, half of your cows from the get-go. So that, that won't work. And I think, I think what Luciana mentioned is very important. You have cows that go through metritis and they recover and they get pregnant at first service. You have a good chunk of them actually, uh, 30, 35%. It's lower than the cows without metritis, but some of them will get pregnant. Some of them don't have such a abrupt decline in milk production. So they, they still continue to be profitable cows. By the time you know that answer, right? You already know she's pregnant and she, her milk production didn't drop. It's already past the point that you would have made the decision. So it, the hindsight is always much better. But if you are at the event of metritis, you're looking at a cow that you're going to treat for metritis uh, on week two postpartum to look forward and say, no, this is the cow that I'm going to cool. And that other cow with metritis, I'm going to retain. Uh, we, don't, we still don't know who those cows are. Uh, we need more more data on cows that cure versus cows that don't cure for multiple diseases. We need better markers at the time of diagnosis to do this prospective uh, decision making. Uh, we, we're still not there. Do you think body condition plays a role in that as well? I mean, if you did have a, a calving body condition and then you have, you know, a metritis that's a little bit lingering at, you know, 15 days fresh and I know my body condition has also changed, that that would be an additive effect, don't you think? And is that then enough information? I mean, I'm looking for, with the, the amount of heifers out there and the amount of people just completely not worried about replacements, I'm looking for any reason to, to say, all right, it's really not worth it for this cow. I mean, I'm not advocating for everyone to just say, all right, I'm going to decide in the first three weeks who's getting bred and who's not. But I mean, there's clear cases in my mind, at least I, subjectively, I've seen them in, in practice. It, when we add body condition, does that change the, the, the game? Yeah. So again, looking backwards, the cows that have the poor fertility, if you compare cows with metritis, the ones that had disease and poor body condition score had lower fertility than cows that had just metritis, but not poor body condition score. If the two are definitely related, it, she has poor body condition score because of metritis, or it now is a, becomes a consequence of a metabolic disorder that she may have developed because of metritis, it's hard to know. But those cows are less likely to become pregnant. Another one that we normally use as, a, as, a, as an outcome, but for, for, the, for the farm is very important, is cyclicity. 
So cows with disease are less likely to be cyclic. So if you have a cow that has disease, but, but resume cyclicity before first breeding versus a cow that has disease and were not able to recover cyclicity, the second cow is less likely to become pregnant. So that's another criteria you, you could use. Now, I, I, I don't feel comfortable recommending this uh, because we, we don't have a really good metric that if you follow this set of criteria, then you're gonna have extremely high sensitivity and specificity to know which ones are gonna be your successful cows and which ones will not. I think that will come with more data, like Brett mentioned activity. So if you put data related to activity and rumination, and then data related to biomarkers, inflammatory markers, uh, oxidative mar markers, we might have enough predicted value to determine that they, that cow shouldn't shouldn't stay. For now, I think that at least at least the way I see it, evaluating how cows are faring off transition, you have an increase in milk production. So comparing, maybe not peak production, but week two, week four milk production, see how they're transitioning. Uh, and I think another another point to that is how many cows does that farm need? That determines how aggressive you're going to be at cooling. So if I need to retain more cows, then I'm going to keep more cows. If I if I need to to sell cows or I have too many coming in, then you start looking for problem cows because you have to to sell them. Then by all means, get get the cow with multiple diseases occurrence, cows with poor body condition score, and other cows. You're probably selecting out the least profitable, the least fertile cows. We've talked about the diseases. We've talked about how their effect on, on repro. And we're hoping that Brad will get us to enough information with all the sensors to, to come up with a formula or a metric at some point. You got a question, Brad? Oh, well, I always got something to say. You, you know that. <laughs> I also think that genetics plays a role in, in, in disease uh, transmission. You know, they're some herds are genomic testing and there are genetic evaluations for health and metritis is one of them that you can get a genetic evaluation for. So there may be some selection there for uh, metritis in, in the past. And we've done some of those studies here at, at Minnesota, former grad student, uh, Mike Donnelly, we'll, get, we'll give him a shout out. Uh, you know, he looked at, at, at health treatments on cows and we found that Every uh, metritis event cost $117. So it is not cheap to have a cow with metritis. And that's just the treatments, not accounting for we can't breed them, you know, everything else that goes along with it. So I guess my point is that diseases in cows cost a lot of money to the farmer in many different ways. And do you guys have any comments on the genetic side of this? I don't know if that's something you guys have looked at and, and looking at. If I am genetic testing, are there markers that are reliable enough to to really count on? Yeah, yeah, there there are. I, I'm not a geneticist, and I don't work with genetics uh, directly, but there are markers, uh, SNP markers for for health traits. They have been validated, and that when people compare disease incidence, for example, the 25 percent more uh, resistant to disease, genetically speaking, versus the bottom fourth uh, there are differences in incidence so there are markers uh, there are data showing that the markers are measuring uh, disease incidence uh, in, in in herds uh, and I think continue continue to select for those markers would eventually uh, result in more sound healthier cows they're able to transition better 
we shouldn't really rely uh, on that as heavily as, for example, the, in, the improvements that we saw over the last decades on milk production or composition, right? Disease is a much more multifactorial trait than milk production is. And the weight that we're gonna allow those traits to, to take into, for example, net merit. So if we select this composite traits uh, for, for profitability, a lot of other traits are gonna have much bigger weight. So people are not gonna select just for health, you're going to continue selecting for a more profitable, more productive cow and with a smaller weight for health. So I think on the long run, you're going to have benefits from genetics. And I think that's going to be important. We, we can't rely specifically on genetics to fix this issue. We know that on this show, we talk pretty much prevention and management for everything. You just always have to steal my comments and questions, don't you, Joe? <laughs> that's that's my job. I'm, I I'm kept trying. trying to unmute and you kept talking over me. <laughs> and then this is what happened. Well, as, as Joe was saying, uh, because I told him to say it, we talk a lot about the management piece, uh, you know, on the show. And I just, I don't know how you can't with any of these things. And so, you know, I'm curious, Raphael and Luciano as well, you know, what are you know, maybe those two or three like really key management things that you think can aid in in prevention. All right, so I'm going to say one that I, I know Luciano is not going to say, and I'm biased towards it anyways. I think reproduction, it's one of the, it's a major area to, to be concerned with. The least efficient reproductively the farm is, the more cows getting pregnant too late, you're going to have so more overconditioned cows that parturition more metabolic disorders on the subsequent lactation. So in a sense, being reproductively efficiency ends up leading you to continue to be reproductively efficient. I think that's an important one. Thinking about uterine diseases, uh, maternity management is, is critical. We're starting from hygiene. So there's data out there that cows, they're dirty. They're more likely to have metritis. So not surprised there. So hygiene on the prepartum groups, very important. Hygiene in the maternity pan, very important. Uh, there's some data from Ohio, from uh, Dr. Schunemann. He developed, uh, I thought that study was very interesting. He developed an app to track uh, maternity events. So everybody was logging in when the cow was first saw and moved to the maternity pan and uh, evaluating progress and when the cow uh, finally deliver, and then the outcomes, if it was a live calf, a stillborn calf, and they track the incidence of stillbirth uh, across the hours of the day. So I, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, in that study, that there was 12-hour uh, shifts. So the incidence of stillbirth in the two hours around shift change, so an hour prior to an hour after, was two or three times greater than for cows that calve in any other one of the 10 hours of the shift. So that's probably communication. Like I'm leaving my shift and I'm eager to go home or I'm tired, or there's not a philosophy of communication between the shift that is leaving and the shift that's coming in. Uh, and maybe I don't monitor a cow as closely as I could or should, because I didn't, I don't know exactly when she started delivering. So communication in the maternity pen is very critical. Uh, again, training the team of people that will assist cows through delivery. They have to understand lubrication, cleanliness, uh, force, and when to ask for help, uh, when to call the vet. I think all those are very important. And 
there's data relating all those back to incidence of metritis and then back to fertility and so on and so forth. Luciano, what do you think? Yeah, well, the, the thing that it's much like more general, like last episode, we talked about nutrition, very important to keeping those cows as prepared as possible to fight back those diseases. But one other thing that we didn't talk last time and we didn't talk much now is I would say cow comfort and having cows stress-free, right? I believe it's Dr. Gordy Jones here in Wisconsin keeps saying the production of milk is the absence of stress or something like that. That's his quote, but that's what it is. Cows, uh, if you're, if we are adding salt to the injury, like making them suffer even more than the stress that they're going through around calving, we are just making them more likely to have diseases and have bad outcomes after that. So cow comfort and making sure cows are with the least amount of stress as possible. So that goes with stocking density, cleanliness, like Rafael mentioned before, the routine of the farm and the way things are moving, the cow movements, all those things play a role in it. Uh, and we sometimes we don't think about it and they are very important. There's something to this, you know, this cycle, repro efficiency cycle, you know, if you can get cows pregnant at the correct time and then, you know, body condition falls in line with that, then it comes back around. And I think that's once you're in that cycle, things are good. And I think the the way to get into that cycle is through all these other things you guys talked about, which is the cleanliness, the communication, cow comfort, all those other things that we've mentioned a million times on the show with, with management. And uh, if you can get into that, that cycle of getting that repro efficiency, it'll, it'll, it'll run itself really well. If you can keep track of all those other things and make sure that you don't have heat stress or cold stress or diet changes that really screw with uh, keeping everything flowing. So uh, I think we'll change gears a little bit and talk about uh, Raphael's, some of his latest work with metritis and, and talking about really that it, it, it does have an effect on, on reproduction. You know, there is a clear difference between cows who had metritis and not, but then also some of the treatment decisions that we make and, and in what medication to use to treat clinical math, not clinical mastitis, but clinical metritis. Raphael, can you kind of walk me through how that was set up when you're comparing these two medications? So most of this study was actually done by a colleague of mine, Fabio Lima, which is at UC Davis now when we were in grad school. Uh, those are the first studies that I, that I got involved with. And the idea was to evaluate just alternatives, uh, more alternatives, the merrier. Uh, that, that was the initial thought, right? So we did some studies comparing Cefifur products with ampicillin products. Uh, bottom line from what we found, uh, there were some minor differences on timing to cure, but the overall cure in the end was similar between the, the two drugs. So we never concluded one was better than the other, uh, which again, on itself, is a, it's a good outcome because it gives you more, more alternatives. More recent work done by uh, Ricardo Chabelle, which used to be in Minnesota, is here now in Florida. Uh, he's running away from the cold a little. But there's also changes in the dynamics of the farm if you, depending on what treatment you decide to use. So some products require the cow to be milk separate. So you, you end up with movement of cows to the hospital and milk withdrawal times uh, where other uh, alternatives uh, that's not necessary. So he evaluated changes in behavior. So he tracked behavior with activity collars and rumination collars. And the conclusion was pretty similar that 
despite some initial reshuffling when cows were moved, uh, there was not a lot of disturbance, uh, which again, uh, farms will be able to choose what fits best for, for their routine and, and goals. More recently, we, we moved away a little from evaluating which one of the two antimicrobials was better. Dr. Galvão here in, in Florida has done some study with alternative uh, methods. So he tried uh, chitosan particles, which is a shellfish molecule, not a traditionally classified antimicrobial. Uh, as part of this push to find known antibiotic uh, measures to treat cow's metritis. Unfortunately, the in vitro data didn't replicate itself in vivo. So his conclusion was that uh, there was not a, a, a good alternative to treat cow's metritis. So that didn't add to the, to the basket of alternatives that we have. The work that we are doing in, in my lab more recently are focusing on two, two main things. Number one is within the group of cows that develop metritis, we know that there's some of these cows that are able to recuperate and become pregnant on the first breeding, for example, and maintain that pregnancy to term, whereas some other cows are not able to. So we sample uterine contents from, from these cows, and now we're looking at differences in uterine microbiome and metabolome, trying to understand what's related to metritis that truly dictates whether the cow becomes infertile or not. Uh, there's a lot of information comparing healthy cows with cows in metritis, but within metritis, what's different between the ones that get pregnant versus the ones that don't, that's, uh, that hasn't been done yet. So that's ongoing. Hopefully in the near future, we're gonna have more insight on that. And the main goal for us to do that is maybe there's additional treatments that we can develop focusing not only on clinical cure, but also in improving fertility in cows that are being treated for metritis. So we're trying to understand some of that dynamic before we can evaluate strategies to improve fertility. The other area that we are very interested in now is uh, the importance of cure. So we, uh, one of my students just finished uh, his work with evaluating performance of cows with metritis treated with antimicrobials that were then a week later uh, were considered to be cured. So the way that was done was the same metric check that we used to evaluate uh, the vaginal discharge to diagnose metritis. The same technique was applied a week after the treatment was completed and cows were either classified as cured, so that vaginal discharge of five or the reddish brownish fatted uh, watery discharge was no longer present uh, and cows that were not able to cure. So they still had the same clinical signs a week later. And he was able to show that it is very important to cure. Uh, that comes, not as a surprise uh, that was uh, expected, but it's good to put some numbers to it. So the cows that after being treated for metritis were not able to cure, they were more likely to develop clinical and subclinical endometritis. So those are some of the cows that you have that persistent infection and inflammation that drags past uh, close to the voluntary wait period. Uh, for multiplos cows, those cows that didn't cure produce less milk than the ones that cured. And overall fertility was worse for cows with metritis that didn't cure versus cows that uh, cured. Also not surprising, cows that don't cure, they're more likely to die. They're more likely to be uh, cooled from the herd. So in improving cure, it's, it's very important. So part of that is therapy. So th if we can design therapy, therapeutic approaches that would increase cure, we can probably 
also get better performance of cows with metritis, right? So I think we discussed this so far, it's very important to create a condition to minimize the disease. And that should always be step number one. But I think we can also work with, we're probably not gonna eliminate metritis completely. Having better uh, therapies is also important. What's interesting about that is some of the risk factors for lack of cure are also risk factors for metritis. So cows that have retained fetal membranes, we know that they're more likely to develop metritis. Uh, but among the cows that develop metritis, those that had retained fetal membranes, they're also less likely to be cured uh, after treatment. So in that sense, preventing retained fetal membranes probably helps you in two ways, decreasing metritis incidence and also improving percentage of cows that cure. That's really interesting. I, yeah, I guess I, I, I didn't really think about that, that we can really put numbers to that, that the risk factor of certain things for metritis was also you know, a risk factor for lack of cure. So that's, that's good to know that someone's really putting numbers to that. Did you guys look at the true economics and put numbers to things on, you know, get a pretty good, good idea of what this costs when you, when you also factor in reproduction or is that a kind of a, it's a big ask? No, no. Uh, it's in the, it's in the, in the plans to do that. Uh, just based on all the inputs for that model, you have a cow that was treated just the same that had lower production, less fertility, greater risk of being sold or die, there will be an economic benefit from for curing. We, we haven't calculated how much that is now, but that's an interesting number we probably should come up with. My last question on this, and I think you know we'll, we'll check with everyone else and see if they have any questions, but how important in this whole discussion of treatment of, of metritis is supportive care? So we've talked a lot about antimicrobials, but we haven't really said anything about NSAIDs and or, you know, any other adjunct therapies that we talk, talk about when it comes to supportive care. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the reason why we don't talk about supportive care as much is not because it's not important, it's because it's not as extensively evaluated as much as antimicrobials are. Uh, therefore, we have less numbers and we only are left with the concept that, yeah, we should probably provide supportive care for these cows, but don't ask me what the numbers are in response to that, because uh, those are gonna be lacking. But I think, but I think it's very important. In this study, uh, another thing that we measure is, is fever at diagnosis. Some cows have metritis with fever versus without fever, and cows with fever were less likely to cure, and they have poor performance compared to cows without fever. So that's showing that the systemic presentation of the disease is an aggravating factor on top of the local uterine effect of the disease. Uh, and for that, the supportive therapy, I think that's where a lot of the benefit will come. Uh, a lot of these cows are uh, less active. A lot of these cows are drinking less, they're eating less, which then reflects in lower milk production and providing supportive care, it's, it's, it's critical. We know metritis is a painful disease. There's some studies from Germany that they evaluated pain responses in cows with metritis. And to the best of our abilities, we understand that that's a painful inflammatory disease. So pain management also is probably important from the cow's perspective to increase comfort and help the cow getting out of that disease scenario. 
Well, good. I think we've covered what we need to cover. Uh, it's time to wrap it up. Uh, there's plenty to, to digest in this, this episode. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Rafael and Luciano, for being here. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you very much, Luciano, for the invitation. And congratulations on organizing this. I really like this uh, dynamics you guys are creating with the podcast and the conference and the, uh, and the meeting rooms. I think the, the audience is going to really benefit from this. We appreciate it. If there are scathing rebuttals, comments, questions, you guys know how to find us. Please email themoosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. If you want more information, you can always go to extension.umn.edu. Follow us on Twitter, at umnmoosroom. On Facebook, we're at umnbeef and at umndairy. And, uh, oh, I forgot, sorry, on Twitter, we're also at UMN Farm Safety. With that, we'll, we'll cut the plugs. No more plugs today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next episode. Bye. Yeah, I usually look at a cow with metritis and go, yep, Holstein. <laughs> That's called bias. <laughs> little bit, tiny <laughs> bit of bias. <laughs> Just a little bit.